Good evening, and uh, it's good to be opening God's Word. Please turn in your Bibles with me to uh, the book of Titus, and uh, like a fool, I have expected a different result, and I did not bring a bulletin with me, and I don't know what page number it's on. (laughs) If you're using a pew Bible, that's the New King James, that's what I'll be reading from, uh, and I'm sure your bulletin information has the page number there. Uh, We are actually going to be uh, starting with a passage from Titus chapter 1 and then flipping over to Titus chapter 3. So you can turn to the beginning of Titus in your Bibles. And just as a refresher, uh, as Pastor Holdeman noted, it has been about a year since we started this series, and this is the fourth sermon in that series. So uh, just as, again, a brief refresher, this uh, this letter was written towards the end of of Paul's life as he's uh, wrapping up his missionary ministries, and he's writing to uh, his young protege, Titus, who's now left on the Isle of Crete, and he's giving instructions about this, this young church that's growing in uh, yet another Gentile part of the world. So far, he's given instructions on uh, appointing elders, on disciplining false teachers, giving guidelines for living, uh, both in the family, in the household, uh, and in the civil society. And then, of course, Paul has rooted all of this uh, at the very center of the book in the resurrection hope of Christ. And so now he has moved, he's wrapping up the book, and he's giving guidelines uh, ultimately uh, for living in the world, concluding the letter with some final instructions to Titus. As I mentioned, we're going to begin in Titus chapter 1, verses 7 through 16, and then we'll go to the last few verses of the book. So listen and hear the word of the Lord. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now turn with me to chapter 3, beginning at verse 8 to the rest of the chapter. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. 
All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. I read a story this week uh, of a man who entered the hospital uh, for an elective surgery and was uh, preparing to go into the operating room when the nurse came and told him, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait. Uh, We've just received somebody through the emergency room uh, who's in a a terrible car wreck uh, and in critical condition, so we need to usher them into the operating room. You'll have to wait. And the man sat in the room and waited for hours and hours and hours and hours. I think the the number was something like six or eight hour surgery uh, that they had gone through in order to save this patient's life. And after that, uh, the surgeon graciously went into the room and said, it's been a long day. I know it's been a long wait. We are still happy to conduct your surgery. Just give us about 30 minutes to turn over the room. And the nurse offered the information. We know this is terribly inconvenient. We're happy to reschedule. I know this is difficult. Somebody almost died today. And the patient who had been waiting responded, you should have let him. I took the day off for this. And there's a sense from that very feeling, right, that that there's something wrong with that. We know that right off the bat. There is something good about having your schedule in order. There's something good about knowing that your finances are set the way they ought to be. There's even something good about pursuing your health. But when we take these right things and we put them in the wrong order in order to serve ourselves, things do not go right. And that's not just true for people out in the world. This is true for Christians both out in life and when it comes to the church. We can be pursuing good and upright things and as soon as we put them through a lens of our own desires and our own needs and our own priorities first, we wind up not pursuing life but pursuing death. And that's what we see in our passage today. There's a brief summary, a reminder of all of God's commands to all of his people so that we can put that lens over our eyes and see the world with God's priorities rather than our own. And the message that we see in tonight's passage is that you need to serve God's church in truth by loving the people he loves. Serve God's church in truth by loving the people he loves. And children, if you're drawing a picture, I've asked you to draw a picture of Somebody who doesn't love the church and somebody who does love the church, I don't know if they look any different, uh, but perhaps they act a little bit differently towards one another. And so uh, I'd like you to draw a picture of how these two people respond to each other. What are they doing or or speaking to one another? So our our first thing that we need to take note of uh, this evening we find in the opening verses of this passage, and that's that God's church is made up of of a variety of people whom he loves. God's church is made up of a variety of people whom he loves. This is found in verses 12 through 15 of chapter 3. And as we read this, we see that there's a number of people we need to give attention to. Paul writes, when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. So, This is quite a mix of people. We we read about four people explicitly right here, about Tychicus, Apollos, Artemis, and Zenos. We know a little bit about some of these characters, and there's a lot that we don't know uh, about them, uh, including anything else about one or two of these figures. Uh, Tychicus, uh, the very uh, the second of these that's mentioned, is the man we probably know most about. Uh, He's recorded five or six times throughout the biblical record as a a helper to Paul in all of his ministries, and and Paul speaks very highly 
of Tychicus. I've put in your outline, uh, if you've got one from the back, Ephesians 6, 21 and 22, in which Paul writes, But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. So Paul speaks very highly of this man, Tychicus, uh, knowing that he's a a fellow minister and preacher even, we read in some other passages, uh, and possibly, uh, based on what's written of him in Acts, uh, even one of the messengers carrying the gifts to the Jerusalem church. So a very trusted man and a man who has spent a lifetime in service to God's church. Uh, We also read about Apollos, uh, somebody else of whom we read throughout the biblical text, Uh, This is the Apollos, most likely, uh, who we read about in Acts 18, which I've also included in your outline. It reads, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. We know that after that, Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and trained him up even more that he might further the ministry of the gospel. But again, a a man mighty in the scriptures who had been taught in the way of the Lord. Another man that we read here who has been given, uh, who's given of a lifetime of service to God's church. And these two men are spoken of very highly in in very different ways throughout the gospel record. And this is uh, what we see, a man with a Jewish background, but again, an encourager, a preacher, a, a man steady and steadfast in God's word. The other two that we read about in this passage, we actually know nothing about from anywhere else in scripture except for this passage right here. Those are Artemis, the very first one uh, in verse 12, when I send Artemis to you. Uh, And we know, as I mentioned, nothing else about Artemis's life uh, except his name here, which is actually uh, translated means a gift from Artemis, uh, the Greek goddess of the hunt. And so we we could sort of understand from the name that he's been given by his parents that this is a man who grew up in a pagan household, a man whose parents worshipped this Greek goddess, uh, perhaps even dedicated him back to the temple service of the goddess, but who who grew up trained hearing everything about the Greek gods uh, for us of antiquity, but for them uh, of worship. And yet here, another man turned from a life of paganism and given over to a life of gospel service. Uh, And if we read some of Paul's other letters, we find that uh, Artemis actually came to Crete, relieved Titus of some duties, and allowed him uh, rest and benefit. And the last man, Zenos. We know only one thing about this man, that he's a lawyer. And yet God... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) uh, But he is a fellow servant with all of these other servants, right? An unknown background, an unknown future. We know nothing about this man but what the gospel commends us of him and that he was a faithful servant of the Lord, doing God's work and doing it faithfully. We also, of course, imply that Paul and Titus are also engaged here. Paul requests that Titus come to him at Nicopolis. uh, And we even read in the very opening verses of Titus, Paul refers to Titus as uh, his son in the common faith. Paul grew up uh, as a Jew of Jews, Titus as a Gentile, and yet they can say, We have one shared thing between us, and that is the salvation that belongs to our God. So we have here people from Turkey, from Corinth, from Ephesus, from Jerusalem, from Crete, 
And yet they've all been gathered together in one service, in the service of God and his church. Faithful people serving one another and serving the people that God has set out, almost like a a hand-picked bouquet. A wide variety of people, a wide variety of backgrounds, of talents, and yet they've all come together in one place to the point that they may glorify with beauty what God has done for them. It calls to mind one of the early terms for the church that we see throughout the New Testament in, in Greek. It's ecclesia, right? The called out ones. And that's exactly what we see throughout this. As we, as we look at the background of all of these people, there's one thing that they have in common, and that is God has called them out. And so you can't ever think that you sitting in these pews is all that you have to offer to God. God has called you out of whatever background you have been in. I don't know if perhaps uh, you were a famous Jewish rhetorician or preacher, or if you came from a pagan background, like Artemis. But the fact is that God can use anybody and everybody as long as they've come through his hands in transformation. And God uses each and every one of these to encourage the church, to welcome them together, to, to share love with one another and grace, to be teaching and preaching the word that they may be built up and encouraged. Even Titus, come to me for fellowship. Right? This is the blessing of being part of God's church, is the unity that we share. And it is our job, the beauty that we may be called out to serve and to devote ourselves to a new life of service to him. And we have to cherish this community that God has handcrafted for us. And Paul gives us some ways to do that, and he also advises us some ways not to do that. And so our second point this evening is that you must avoid pride, which serves self rather than God's church. Avoid pride, which serves self rather than God's church. Paul goes in in verse 9, Uh, to say certain things are unprofitable, they are useless. He's just spoken uh, here, closing out this chapter, of some some people who are are doing great things to serve God's church and to further God's church, to encourage one another and provide fellowship. Uh, And we just finished a passage at the beginning of chapter 3 about all of the wonderful things that God does to build up a new person within us that we might serve others. And in verse 9, he transitions. He says, but... Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. The language here should really remind us of of what we read at the very beginning uh, of this evening. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we hear very similar words echoed of the false teachers. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. And then again, in verse 16, we read, sorry, similar language, they profess to know God, but in works, they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And that phrase, to do good works, or to not do good works, is sort of a a catchphrase that we find all throughout the book of Titus. Uh, We see a a contrast between those who follow God's word, those who are changed in their hearts and in their hands against those people who continue to do nothing and are unfit for good works. Well, the question here is, why would Titus even be dragged into this in the first place? 
And Paul clearly has in view these false teachers, these Judaizers, the people seeking after genealogies and those of the circumcision party saying that you must therefore be circumcised and be a Jew before you can become a Christian. In fact, he calls them divisive men in verse 10. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Uh, It's literally factious people or sectarian ones. It's the word that eventually grew to become the word for heretic. Uh, The root here is that these are people not pursuing truth, but what we read in chapter 1, verse 11, teaching what they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. These teachers are teaching nothing but what brings them glory. They are unprofitable, not fit for good works, as opposed to the people in verse 8. These things are good and profitable. So Paul's sort of laying out a very clear contrast. Uh, We should be careful not to think that, well, anytime you ask a question about anything, you're stirring up trouble. We had a great conversation just this very morning in Sunday school and last Sunday morning as well about uh, the nature of Christ and how he comes to learn and all of these other beautiful things we must dig into to know more about our Savior. And it's not the case that uh, there's a very fine line and if you ask this kind of question, you're out and this kind of question, you're in. That's not what Paul is trying to allude to. What Paul is, is saying, actually, if we, if we put this, John Stott uh, translates this very specifically. He says, uh, verse 8 says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable for men. And then he translates verse 9, but avoid moronic speculations, genealogies, and quibbles and squabbles about the law. These things are unprofitable and useless. And, And it's almost like Paul is very gently spelling out just use your common sense, right? Moronic speculation or affirm constantly the things about our Savior. And, and the distinction between ought and ought not is, is almost comical here. Paul is just painting this as broad uh, and as obvious as it can be. And the point is that if we're keeping our sight on the bigger picture of God's church, If we're keeping our eyes on the Savior and how he transforms our life, we will not be caught up in moronic speculations and quibbles and squabbles. We'll be caught up in the beauty and the glory of the transforming power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that will keep us where our eyes need to be fixed instead of inward and on ourselves. I heard a fairy tale recently of a sculptor uh, who was such an incredible sculptor, anything that he... Uh, sculpted, looked lifelike and real. And he had a dream that death was going to come to him in 10 days' time. And so he spent the next day, 10 days carving one statue a day uh, that looked identical to him. So identical you couldn't tell it apart from him. And when the 10th day came and death knocked at the door, he lined all of them up and he stood in the middle of all of the statues. And death marched up and down the line and realized he couldn't tell the real from the fake. Until death pointed at one of the statues and says, ah, I see a mistake. And instantly the sculptor said, what, where is it? He said, there it is. When we have our own pride to cover up beyond anything else that's beautiful, we wind up pursuing death, just walking right into death. 
rather than the life-giving service of the church. And so we ask when we come to fellowship, right, what are our priorities? Are we getting into conversations and engagements to show off our knowledge about a topic, to see what, what latest book that we read that nobody else has read? Are we promoting our learning, or are we getting involved in promoting the community of learning together, the community of pursuing God in his word? Are we seeking together what's found in the word for the purpose of furthering the church? And divisiveness is not just brought about by those who initiate, right, these heresiarchs, if you will, lead heretics. It's brought about by people who want to keep the fight going. And so we have to be those who are not going around picking fights with our brothers over speculations, quibbles, and squabbles. And at the same time, there are things in the church that we need to fight for. And so how is it that we know what's worth fighting for? And how do we go about pursuing the future of the church? Well, that's the third thing we see in tonight's passage, and that is that you need to serve God's church by loving the truth and living out the truth. Serve God's church by loving and living out the truth. I point here to verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3. Paul warns to reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Paul does indeed have strong words and actions for these factious and seditious people. Uh, and that, that answer is church discipline. These, these words should remind us of Jesus' words in Matthew 18, verses 15 and 16, where Christ admonishes, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. All the while, right, the very center of this explanation of church discipline is if he hears you, you have gained your brother. And oftentimes church discipline is uh, either not practiced because the fear is it's not about gaining your brother, it's about wielding a sword, or it's simply wielded as a sword. And I'm grateful to be uh, amongst brothers and elders who do not treat it as a sword, but as a, a beckoning call back to the flock of God. But this is is Paul's point, right? We, must, uh, we might tend to think that church discipline is only for extremely heinous offenses, for scandalous things, and, and it is, uh, but Paul actually points that this is for those who promote false gospel and those who are just plain divisive. We need to be talking with one another in love, pursuing not division, but the unity that comes in Christ. Paul says this er elsewhere in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5, these very familiar verses to us. He says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So Paul says, if you're going to be in fellowship with other Christians, actually he doesn't just say if you're going to, he says do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. I think it says six different ways in that passage that we ought to be like-minded with one another. If our goal is to have the same mind in Christ, well how are we supposed to do that? 
We look back to verse 8 of chapter 3. Paul says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. The truth of the gospel is what needs to be affirmed constantly. Not, here's every possible way things could go wrong and why you're wrong if you believe this, but the truth of the gospel is what's presented and affirmed constantly before the eyes of the people of the church in Crete. I read a bumper sticker recently. It said, peace if possible, truth at all costs. And I think it's a good summary for us. The opposite of that would be the sort of rampant ecumenicism that we see in the world today, which is truth if possible, peace at all costs. And it's never where we want to be. But I fear that uh, while we're not on the side of uh, evangelical ecumenicism, it's a tendency for us as Reformed Christians to maybe treat the if possible the same way as ecumenical Christians do. Truth, if possible, peace at all costs. Peace, if possible, truth at all costs. Do we treat if possible as though that ought to be attained at all costs? Because peace and truth are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're, they're handmaidens to one another. Peace at all costs, truth at all costs, is what Paul is showing us. I was recently listening to a podcast where they mentioned that Paul has strong warnings against those who act against the church, but the instruction for the lay people in the congregation is to stay the course in Christian teaching. It's always to go back to the gospel. And it's sort of like the the saying that's frequently said, the secret service uh, looks for uh, forged bills, uh, forged uh, currency in America. And they don't do so by studying every one of the millions of ways you could falsify an American dollar. They do it by studying the real one and comparing everything else up to the truth of the real dollar. Or to put it another way, when it comes to doctrine in the church, which would you rather have? The antidote or never be exposed to the poison in the first place. And when it comes to studying God's word, it's not just the antidote to all false doctrine. It is what keeps us on the path of truth always. So as a member of God's church, this idea of fellowship and of one-mindedness and of likeness to Christ, where are our priorities in worship and in fellowship with one another? Are we watching YouTube videos and listening to podcasts, reading news summaries and blogs that tell us every wrong thing every pastor has ever said, every person we disagree with and listing out all of the things that they did wrong? Are we doing that even on days when we miss our Bible reading? Because Paul says that's not where we ought to be. That's not where our heads and our hearts and our hands should be going. Communion with God is the priority of the Christian I heard it said once that we need to read the Bible not to change the page number, but to be changed. And so when you read, do you meditate on God's word, allowing it, it to be the transformation, allowing it to be the truth or the litmus test by which everything is passed? You might even ask yourselves a few simple questions when you get up and read the Bible in the morning. Right? First, what does this teach my head? Second, how does this convict my heart? And third, what does this instruct my hands? So that we walk away knowing 
that we have read the Bible not to change the page number, but to be changed, because this is good and profitable. It serves the church, both by defending the truth from error and by building up one another in love. And Paul provides a practical way of doing just this. So our fourth and final point this evening is that we serve God's church by loving the people he loves. And this is the command to us. Serve God's church by loving the people he loves. And we see this in verses 12 through 15. I'm going to read the closing here once more. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to be at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. And Paul concludes this book by giving what what most would call final instructions. But I think we really ought to see this as a culmination of everything that he's taught in the book. Titus has been taught by Paul first to install church officers in order to keep the order in the church and to serve the church, to show the Christians the life of service, to teach the gospel as the grounds of our transformed life and deeds. And of course, he goes in verses 10 through 12 to rejecting the divisive man or The ESV even translates, after you've warned them once or twice, have nothing to do with these. And there's a very sudden stop where he now speaks of Artemis and Tychicus and Zenos and Apollos. So he goes from have nothing to do with these people to have everything to do with these people. These people are your brothers in the faith. These people are your fellowship. These are the people that have community with Titus, and with whom Titus must also have community. All of these men, and, and Titus should go to Paul, and, and Artemis should give reprieve to Titus. Titus should ensure that Zenos and Apollos are provided for and send them on to minister to other churches. Right? It's a, a great, grand network of people ministering to and serving one another in love and in truth, because it's all about the fellowship and the service to one another in the church. We even read in verse 14, and let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. In teacher training, you often hear that uh, good teachers tell how to do something. They show how to do it. They do it together with someone else, and then they let the student give it a try. And Paul and Titus are being great teachers Paul does this by saying how one ought to live, by showing it, by doing it with others, and then by letting the thriving Christian community do it together. And Paul does this because Paul has been taught the right way to live the Christian life. And this uh, is the next thing in your outline, if you'll turn with me. Uh, I've put here an an outline of Titus. Some divide the book of Titus in a few different ways. Uh, And I I see as I I look through the book, uh, there's this ancient Hebrew structure, the chiasm, right? Pointing to the peak of the mountain. Or as you're climbing up the mountain, everything is looking toward the mountain peak. And after you come back down, you'll never see everything else the same way again, right? So the beginning and the ending have this introductory and conclusion information. We also have the stuff about false teachers, about 
elders, about living the right way, but very center of the book, the very heart of the book of Titus is chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So Paul teaches what he's been taught. Titus teaches what he received from Paul, and Paul is teaching it because he has seen the transforming power of the salvation of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Christ himself showed us and taught us what it means to live the life of loving service. And he's called us to do it together with him for the sake of the church. A union with Christ should be affected by Christ. As we see that as Christians, we too have been laid down in service of God and his people. This should remind us of John chapter 15, where he he speaks to his disciples that I am the vine and you are the branches. And he who abides in me, I will keep him. Later on in that chapter, Jesus says, speaking of love and speaking of abiding in the Father and having communion with God through Jesus Christ, he says in verses 12 and 13, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. The love that Paul commands Titus and Apollos and Tychicus and Zenos and you and me to share is the love that God loves his people with. Christ laid down his life physically, bodily, for his people. And we lay down our own lives in service to one another in love, pursuing good works that we might build one another up in community. And as we do this, we even see Uh, Among the very first words that were uttered in Christ's ministry, the words of John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verses 8 through 10. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is our contrast. Paul says, if you are not going to bear fruit, you are unprofitable and will be cast out. But if you are not cut down and cast out, where do you belong? You stay in the vineyard. You continue to be cultivated by the gardener that you may bear more and more fruit for the sake of the church, for the sake of the glory of God. Paul shows us that this happens by receiving those who are sent in the service of the church, providing for all their needs, like Apollos and Zenos, that they may continue ministering to other churches. It may be allowing rest for missionaries or for people traveling through, teaching and rebuking in love and in truth is a preservation of gospel fellowship, communion with God and a life in service to God. 
This is the example set forth by the apostles because it's the example given to us by Jesus Christ himself. So are we bearing fruit? Are we spending time with the gardener? And is this shaped by the life and death of Jesus Christ? And if your life is not characterized by those things, how do we start? That's by looking to the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So church, serve God's church in truth and in love by loving the people that he loves with the very love that he demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge that every one of us comes from a background that is different and distinct. And at the same time, you have called each and every one of us to a united mind, the mind of Christ Jesus. And God, we thank you that as Christ laid down his very own life for us, that we then may may take up uh, the call that is given to us in service of our Savior to be faithful stewards to the word and to the fruit that is to be borne out in our lives. We pray that you would use us as ministers, not only of your gospel, but ministers to one another, serving the church in love and not seeking out our own glory, but the glory of our resurrected Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'll turn with me now in your blue psalter to Psalm 133b. Psalm 133b, which sings of the refreshing quality of brothers living in fellowship with one another in peace and in unity. So let's serve God by singing forth his word in fellowship together. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>